Last week, we talked about how one of the major requirements to get modern surgery was the invention of anesthesia, or a state of temporary loss of awareness or sensation. Before, any surgery had to be done as quickly as possible, so that the patient was not in constant agony. You'd think then that figuring out a way to prevent pain would have been a top priority, but it simply wasn't. Culturally, especially in the Western world, they often valued strength, and resistance to pain was seen as a virtue. We'll come back to Asia later. On top of that, surgery wasn't a routine thing for most people, and was relatively rare partially because of the lack of pain prevention. I found a lot of gruesome first-person accounts from folks describing their own surgeries. However, as a result of its rarity, few people actually complained about pain in surgery, and until the 1800s in the West, general anesthesia, or making a patient unconscious for the purpose of avoiding pain, didn't really exist as a concept, it seems, even though we'd had potential means of anesthesia for a long time. Alcohol and opium have been used throughout history in medicine to dull pain, and there are records of Arab doctors as early as 1000 AD using narcotics in surgery. Ether, a common agent later in this story, was first discovered to have analgesic properties, which means uh, pain preventing, around 1540. Nitrous oxide, or laughing gas, was discovered in 1772. The first mentions, though, of applying these various drugs to surgery appear in 1800 exactly, from one Humphrey Davy. He was an accomplished scientist generally, who discovered the elements sodium and potassium, and he published three years' worth of research on nitrous oxide. Quote, Nitrous oxide in its extensive operation appears capable of destroying physical pain, and may probably be used in surgical operations in which no great effusion of blood takes place. End quote. Therefore, Davy, at least in the West, is the first person to suggest the application of drugs towards anesthesia. Next came Henry Hill Hickman, who in 1824 tried to figure out a way to anesthetize animals just by using carbon dioxide gas, to knock them out by lack of oxygen. He succeeded in producing unconsciousness in his animals, and was even able to perform small operations and then let the animal recover. However, when he published a pamphlet with his results, it was met with laughter in the few journals that even bothered to review it at all. His work went more or less unrecognized, and he died in 1830 at the age of 30, just six years later. Crawford Long was another early pioneer of anesthesia, who also unfortunately went unrecognized for too long. Notice a theme here? Long was a smart guy who was exposed to top-tier medical technology of the time at University of Pennsylvania, where he received his medical degree. From there, he worked as a surgeon at a rural practice in Georgia. At this point in surgical history, ether had only really been in use for industrial purposes, or in what were called ether frolics. You can probably kind of guess what those were, but basically ether was used for recreation and not much else. In fact, many of the anesthetics that we'll talk about later in the episode were all used for recreational purposes, including nitrous oxide, chloroform, and ether. Anyway, one of Long's friends apparently asked him for chloroform to entertain himself, but Long only had ether on hand. He gave it to them anyway, and observed his friends get high, and noted that one of them actually fell unconscious to the point that they could not be roused even when pinched. You'd think that that caused some concern for the friend, but instead he figured it might be useful for surgery, which I guess is also valid. In 1842, 
Long's neighbor asked him to remove a growth from his neck, and expressed a lot of fear regarding the pain of surgery. Long suggested the use of ether, and ordered some from a chemist. The surgery went great, with his neighbor reporting no pain whatsoever from the operation. From there, Long operated on a number of other patients, but he did not report his work to anyone else. And so the rest of the world went on without knowing about the potential uses of ether in surgery. These days, we have significant evidence that he was the first to use it. These include several receipts for surgeries that are dated back to 1842, and there are charges for the use of ether, just 25 cents each, but nonetheless present. These records were actually almost lost during the Civil War, but Long's daughter hid them in a jar that she buried and then later recovered. Unfortunately, though, Long still didn't spread the news. So, we have yet another tragedy in the story of Horace Wells, a dentist in Connecticut in 1844. I swear this one is the last sad story. Wells saw nitrous oxide used in a show, and thought not incorrectly that it could be potentially applied to dentistry. He convinced his partner to administer nitrous oxide to himself while he had a tooth extracted. Wells said on recovery, quote, It did not hurt so much as the prick of a pin. This is a new era in tooth pulling, end quote. I wish he had been right, but he unfortunately was not. After testing on some more patients, he then finally gave a demonstration at Massachusetts General Hospital. Wells called for a volunteer from the audience, administered nitrous oxide, and then pulled a tooth, at which point his volunteer leapt up and screamed. He was unfortunately labeled an imposter, and even when the volunteer student afterwards denied feeling any pain, Wells was still labeled as a fraud. We know now in modern times that nitrous oxide often makes patients unable to feel or remember pain, but that they may still react to it in the moment, which explains this unfortunate mishap. Unfortunately, it ruined Wells' career. He continued experimentation, but never met with any recognition. His mental health declined, and he died in prison by suicide, while held on charge of throwing acid on a prostitute. So, yeah, that did not end well. Finally, though, Wells' work was not in vain. Gardner Quincy Colton, the man who had actually first shown Wells how nitrous oxide could be administered, became a strong believer and actually formed a company, the Colton Painless Extraction Company, and by 1873 had given nitrous oxide to some 67,000 patients without any deaths. He demonstrated the effects of the drug internationally, and is at least partially responsible for the frequent use of nitrous oxide as a dental anesthetic today. If you've had your wisdom teeth pulled, a very common procedure at least in the US, dentists often use nitrous oxide as an anesthetic of choice. I was actually treated with the stuff, and can confirm that I remember nothing of the actual tooth extraction. Wells was also to help inspire another man, William Thomas Green Morton, a friend of the late Wells. Morton worked with nitrous oxide as well, but was convinced that it was not ready for practical use. He attended chemistry classes under a Professor Charles Jackson in Boston, who suggested to him the use of sulfuric ether instead. Remember that Crawford Long from earlier never published his work, so as far as these guys know, they're the first to ever try this out. Morton first tried commercial ether, which was used for industrial purposes, but is often diluted with water and spirit. Unfortunately, commercial ether is a little bit too weak for medical use, but at Professor Jackson's prompting, he switched to a more pure version. From there, Morton claims that he performed a number of experiments on fish, insects, a pet dog, and himself. For sure, though, we know that in September 30th, 1846, 
Morton gave a patient named Eben Frost ether in order to remove some teeth, and it worked. The book I read on him described Morton as incredibly self-interested and generally not particularly virtuous. Upon his discovery, he tried to patent anesthesia and wanted to receive royalty payments every single time anesthesia was used. He tried to hide that he was using ether, using red dye, and adding oils to make the concoction smell strange. However, that brazen greed was perhaps a good thing in this case, because the, clearly the medical establishment wasn't particularly interested in anesthesia and would require a good push to move forward. Morton followed in the path of his friend Wells and gave a presentation also at Massachusetts General Hospital. On October 16, 1846, a large crowd assembled in the operating theater of mostly skeptical folks, especially considering Wells' earlier demonstration. There are multiple accounts of the demonstration, and they only vary in very small details. The patient was named Gilbert Abbott, a 23-year-old painter who was brought in and seated. The surgeon waited, checked the time, and then said to the audience, Dr. Morton is not here. I presume he is otherwise engaged. A bit of a dig which spurred a few laughs. It was then that Morton made his dramatic appearance, carrying a red fluid and a flask, and in the company of Eben Frost, if you'll recall, his first patient. The surgeon, still clearly feeling a little bit sassy, remarked, Well, Dr. Morton, your patient is ready for you. Morton then asked the patient if he'd like an explanation from Frost of how the ether felt, but the painter refused, opting instead to just begin the procedure. Morton had the patient inhale the fumes coming off of the liquid ether. At first, the patient coughed, but then became quieter and quieter, until finally he relaxed. Morton then retorted, Well, Dr. Warren, your patient is ready for you. The surgeon then got to work. Warren made a three-inch long cut in the neck and removed an infected gland. The patient did not move nor cry out in those three minutes until the stitches were placed, at which point he stirred just a little bit. When asked, Did you feel anything? The patient responded, quote, I thought I felt someone scratching at my neck. Warren, probably very much to Morton's satisfaction, announced to the crowd, quote, Gentlemen, this is no humbug. We have seen something today that will go round the whole world. Finally, this time, Warren would be correct, and the use of ether did quickly spread around the world. Apparently, fourth time is the charm, or something like that. Robert Liston, of one of our bonus episodes, used it in December 1846 to remove a leg and an ingrowing toenail in two separate patients. He wrote, quote, This Yankee Dodge beats mesmerism hollow. It is a fine thing for operating surgeons, end quote. Mesmerism refers to trying to use hypnotic suggestion as anesthesia, which was a thing, albeit not a very effective thing. This glowing review from one of the most renowned surgeons of the time spread adoption of the technology very quickly and even led to new innovations. In Russia, Professor N.I. Pirogov pioneered rectal injection of the vapor instead of inhalation to avoid some of the unpleasantness involved. Within a year, anesthesia was widespread practice, although some patients still refused the unknown hazards, or surgeons themselves still didn't trust the technology. Some of the gripes were specifically with either as an agent, which is an irritant, is extremely flammable, and causes salivation and nausea. Thus, James Young Simpson suggested the use of chloroform instead. In 1847, he and two other doctors conducted a, uh, experiment of sorts. 
They all had dinner at Simpson's house, and then they wrapped table napkins around their heads and inhaled chloroform from their wine glasses. Like many other acts from this podcast, please don't try that at home. They, of course, quickly lost consciousness. So, of course, according to Simpson, chloroform was, quote, better and far stronger than ether. Like Morton early on, Simpson was also a bit of a scoundrel, but it was to the benefit of mankind in this specific instance, as he too fought to spread the use of anesthesia, which also happened to be in his best interest. In one example, he was met with resistance from the church, which objected to reducing pain during childbirth as sinful, because Eve was cursed with that pain as punishment from God. Simpson's reply to the clergyman was that God was the first to administer anesthesia during birth because he had put Adam to sleep when taking a rib to create Eve. Fair point. However, church representatives argue that the birth of Eve had occurred before their banishment from Eden, and that the curse of Eve reads, quote, In sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Simpson, ending the conversation, claimed that the Hebrew word had been mistranslated, and that sorrow should actually be read as effort. As it turns out, Simpson straight up lied in order to win this argument, but again he did so to promote the use of anesthesia during childbirth. Simpson ultimately won out. The really pivotal moment, though, was when an amateur anesthesiologist named John Snow administered chloroform to Queen Victoria during the birth of Prince Leopold in 1853. Snow was actually not even a professional, and was a commoner being received by the Queen, and most certainly would have been incredibly nervous considering how new the technology was, and the unsure efficacy of its use for childbirth. Luckily, the procedure went well, and the Queen described it as, quote, that blessed chloroform, soothing and delightful beyond measure. Which is not how I would personally describe chloroform, but to each their own. Generally, as with many things, once the royalty partake, just about anything becomes mainstream, and anesthesia was no exception. Chloroform wasn't perfect either, but it did become the most widely used agent for the next 60 years. It was less irritating to inhale, more powerful, and much easier to use. It can cause liver damage though, and irregular heartbeats. But the main problem is that the difference between an effective dose and a toxic dose of chloroform is relatively small, so chloroform carried a higher risk of danger when used. But nonetheless, painless surgery was now possible, regardless of your agent of choice. That's just the story of early anesthesia in the Western Hemisphere, though, so now I'd like to talk about the brilliant man who surpassed many of these accomplishments we've talked about, more or less on his own, because seriously, he deserves some credit. If you'll recall, in the 1780s, Western doctors had just barely figured out that ether might be useful in surgery at all. But over in Japan, Hanaoka Seishu was way, way ahead of his time. Hanaoka had some knowledge of Chinese herbal medicine, as well as some Western surgical techniques that he had picked up from the Dutch. His knowledge of Chinese herbal medicine led him to read about an ancient potion supposedly used to knock out patients for surgeries. Starting in 1785, he began trying to recreate the effect. He performed tons of experiments, including on his wife, who actually lost her sight due to side effects of his concoctions. Sheesh, talk about dedication. It took almost two decades, but his final formula contained eight or so different plants, and when consumed would numb the patient and then knock them out for several hours. This effect would remain for up to a day, depending on the dosage, more than enough to conduct some surgery. 
1804, he performed a partial mastectomy, or a removal of the breast, to treat breast cancer in a patient, using his formulation as a general anesthetic. From there, he performed many surgeries, removing tumors, bladder stones, and even doing amputations with his new technology. We know of his work because his fame grew throughout the country, and he gained many students who later reproduced manuscripts detailing his work. Unfortunately, Hanaoka's revolutionary work took place during a time of extreme isolationism in Japan. He helped many patients, but the Tokugawa shogunate, which ran the country, completely prevented his work from being spread internationally, until 1854, some 70 years later. However, by then, the rest of the world had already figured out general anesthesia via ether or chloroform, and so it had little effect on the international advancement of anesthesia. It's a bit sad, because if he had been able to get the word out 70 years earlier, I imagine we'd have had a lot of medical progress in the ensuing time period. Regardless of how we got here, the existence of anesthesia, even rudimentary, is to have wide-ranging effects. For one, it made surgeries much more bearable for individual patients undergoing procedures. But you'd maybe overlook the effect it would have on the surgeons as well. Keep in mind that before anesthesia, surgeons had to endure the howling and screams of pain of their patients while operating, knowing that they are doing the right thing, but still causing extreme suffering regardless. For surgeons, the invention of anesthesia was life-changing. Warren, the surgeon in Morton's first demonstration, apparently spoke to the audience full of emotion. Robert Liston actually ended his first operation using anesthesia teary-eyed. But beyond these personal effects, it would grant surgeons time, one of the most important resources of all. Keep in mind that part of why surgery had been conducted so quickly in the past and was limited to short procedures was because of the incredible pain involved and the difficulty in controlling a patient who is in such pain. Although at first the short procedures remained and patients were only put out for small periods of time. But within a decade, doctors began to figure out they could keep patients unconscious by continually administering ether or chloroform and perform, therefore, more intricate, longer surgeries. Fistulas, or abnormal connections between parts of the body, became repairable. Severely broken bones could be put back into place surgically now. Joints could also be operated upon, even being removed in the event of infection. Which sounds bad, but was still very preferable to having the entire limb severed. Anesthesia was to herald a new era of surgery, massively expanding the possibility of operations. Next week, we'll stay on anesthesia just a little bit longer in order to talk about the invention of local anesthesia, as opposed to general anesthesia. As always, thanks for listening, and thanks to my editor Jojo Tang, Angie Lee for our cover art, and to Muse Open for our intro and outro. Talk to you next week.